we are in the strongest position that we have been since the founding of the company. Um, I think the technology that we've built really speaks for itself. And I'm hoping that going forward, we can really start framing the conversation around actual performance of these AV systems as opposed to uh, secondary factors such as size of the team or money raised or partnerships established, right? What does the technology say? And in that case, at least in the trucking in the trucking arena, I think Kodiak is, is absolutely at the top. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy. Um, founder of the Human Driving Association, director of special operations at Argo AI, although I do not represent them on this podcast, and producer of Apex, the secret race across America. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, which is now available in paperback. <laughs> nice plug. And I am Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor over at TechCrunch. And today we have a great guest who has actually been in and around self-driving trucks for quite a long time, this time as co-founder and CEO of Kodiak Robotics, Don Burnett. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. Great. Well, I'm sure that Alex and Ed have lots of questions, but before we get into Kodiak Robotics, I want to go back in time as to when you first became interested in uh, autonomous vehicles and why trucks? Because you were one of the original co-founders of Auto, correct? That's right. That's right. So, so if, you know, if you want to go back to my original motivation, um, it actually goes back to my undergraduate years. I was at the University of Florida and I was interested in robotics and engineering, but I didn't have a specific goal to go into self-driving in my early years there. And funny enough, the, the DARPA urban uh, DARPA grand challenges were happening at the time. And I was not a participant in those, in those challenges, but I worked in a machine, what was called a machine intelligence lab at the university of Florida. And we shared a wall with the lab that was working on the DARPA projects. And so it was very close to those, um, those folks. And it was really exciting time to be, be around it. And then the real catalyst for me to try to make this story kind of short, I was driving from home in Fort Lauderdale up to Gainesville uh, to, to attend a football game after Thanksgiving one year. And I got into an accident that um, I felt like was very preventable. And a car just basically came over on me with no warning, no indicator, and it swerved off the road. And it was like a moment in my life where I felt like, okay, that could have gone really badly. I'm really lucky to be alive. And then shortly after that, I had a friend driving back from a different college, driving home. Similar thing. He was with friends in, in, in a vehicle and he was in an accident, not at fault. And he ended up dying. His name was Josh. He was a high school friend. And just those two, just two events combined with the DARPA Grand Challenge really, really struck me in a way that, that led me to feel like, okay, there must be a better way to make roads safer. And so I started to direct my interest into self-driving. And when I graduated, I, I went to Carnegie Mellon, who had just recently come off winning the DARPA Urban Challenge. And I was really excited to join that team, work with Chris Ermson and the group there to 
to pursue what I thought was going to be an academic career in self-driving because at the time, industry wasn't a thing. I thought I was going to become a professor and run a lab, etc. But then everything turned on its head when Google started their self-driving project, which of course I, I then uh, joined shortly after and it's been hitting the ground running ever since. So when you, I would love to hear what it was like when you were over at uh, Carnegie Mellon. Obviously we, we know a lot of folks who have come out of programs there, Chris being one of them, but um, numerous others who have gone on and it seems like they all thought they were going to go into academia and then many of them ended up going over to the former uh, Google self-driving project or chauffeur, whatever you want to call it. And then from mm-hmm. there have gone on to launch their own companies and, you know, Brian Slesky being one over at Argo, um, yep. Dave Ferguson, of course, um, with Neuro, there's multiple others. So uh, when was it that you thought about um, actually making an industry leap? Was it an influence from specific people over at uh, CMU at the time? Or or was it some other change within the industry? Like uh, the computational power was enough now that you saw that this could happen or some other breakthrough? It's, it's a really good question. And often I, I don't get to talk about this aspect of the journey. But funny enough, I remember touring NREC, the National Engineering Robotics Center, I believe it was called, with Brian Selesky uh, many, many moons ago. And uh, he was showing me all of the government-related projects that, that that research lab had been a part of. And that was, that was a really interesting side to see as well. I never participated in any of those, but it, you know, as a young grad student, I was, I was very curious. After the urban challenge, DARPA in some ways declared self-driving solved and or done. And there wasn't a very clear path in academia as to where things were headed. And so there was a lot of talk about what what were we speaking for the academic self-driving community going to do? What were we going to pursue? Where where were we going to go next? We thought about actually trucking was it was a topic that was discussed. We talked about racing. Could we push the speed limits because the urban challenge was very slow? Um, we didn't really have a crystal clear picture as to where it was going. And it was also a question of where was the funding going to come from? Which government agencies, which um, which funding entities, National Science Foundation, among others, were going to continue to push the kind of money that we all sort of thought we needed in order to really make progress. And that's when Google, for reasons that I was not party to uh, from the onset, decided, hey, we're going to pick up this baton and we're going to run with it and we're going to fund this project. And at the time, I really think it was research focused um, in the early days. Uh, we were all researchers combined in a room, it's a very small team. I think I was number 10 on the engineering team. And we were just seeing what was possible. And the, the idea that Google, which was a very successful company, wanted to fund this endeavor and fund this effort in a way that was very little bureaucracy. Uh, if you know anything about academic funding, it's 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 a complicated um, it's a complicated picture. It seemed like, hey, this is this is the way to go. And on top of that, Google had really assembled the best of the best. They went to all the different programs: Stanford, Michigan, Carnegie Mellon, and they brought all the top talent to one place, combining all of the former ideas into one and taking the best of the best. And I think this is the theme you're going to see throughout the entire evolution of the self-driving industry, which is building on prior experience, bringing a diversity of perspectives to the table, saying, okay, 
these are the best ideas for this application. These are the best ideas for this application. Let's bring those together and let's build something standing on the shoulders of all the work that's come before us. And it was really appealing, especially for me being, being a, a, at that point, a grad school dropout. I didn't end up getting my PhD and finishing. I was surrounded by the folks that I was reading in the textbooks, right? Um, you know, folks like Mike Montemarillo, Sebastian Thrun, obviously working with Chris, et cetera. But um, it, was, it was a great place to be. So there was no, there was no looking back for me or for, for any of the others, I think. When did, uh, when did trucks come into focus, right? Because you saw folks like, um, you know, like Brian Selesky, Alex's boss, uh, go into to Caterpillar mm-hmm. uh, and do some stuff there. And there's been this interesting sort of dichotomy between um, companies that have sort of have that long-term vision of something, you know, more consumer facing and personal mobility oriented and things like that versus, I um, mean, it seems like the smaller companies have had to, the startups have had to focus a little bit more on shorter term applications, sort of where can we, you know, start to make a buck mm-hmm. uh, with this technology sooner um, rather than sort of going for that big, uh, big prize or what people think of as that big prize. Um, was it purely a financial thing? Were there technical aspects to that, that decision? Sort of how, how did that work? It's a great question. There, there were technical aspects. There were, you know, I want to say common sense aspects, but, but really, I think fundamentally, when you look at the evolution of the chauffeur project for the first two or three years, 2009 through 2011 or 12, it really was research-based. Let's push this. Let's just see what's possible. There was no talk of business model. There was no talk of robo taxis. There was no talk of highway autopilot or anything like that. We just wanted to see what was possible. And then, of course, there was the famous Larry 1K and, um, you know, the the challenge routes, which still to this day, I think, are incredibly impressive accomplishments for the time. But the system was not built in a general purpose way. It was designed to solve those specific challenges. And then we almost did a 180 pivot with this idea, which, of course, you know, think Google. Google thinks big. The founders, Larry and Sergey, they think big. They want to, they really want to make an impact on society. They want technology to touch people's lives in a very direct and material way, which I, I think is fantastic. And so we shifted to let's solve the hardest problem. Let's solve everything. Let's make cars that can drive in the most challenging environments with 100% reliability improve the safety of the roads, improve people's mobility. It was a really grand vision, one that initially I was very excited about. And then the, the latter three years of my career, I was there about six years, the, the technical reality set in. We started to move into surface street driving. We started to move into the robo-taxi era. And two things became apparent. One, there's a really challenging technical problem to solve all of all of the types of cases that prop up things like jaywalkers and pedestrians and stoplights and intersections. You, you guys know the challenges with, with driving. If you drive in downtown San Francisco or New York City, that's all you need to see to understand that this is a very difficult problem. And then the second was the business model. How do you actually pick up and drop people off? How do you build this technology for a domain, meaning a, a geographical location, where people want to go because it turns out that the hardest driving environments are the ones that are the most dense and and cluttered but they're also the environments where people want to be and they're they're dense and cluttered because people want to be there and so you don't get to have it both ways you can't find an easy open road low density environment 
that also benefits from ride sharing, benefits from the self-driving technology. So if you really want to make an impact, you need to take the approach, for instance, like Cruise, where they're in San Francisco and they're like, we're going to do it here because this is where it matters. And I, and I agree with that. But you have the technical challenge. So I found myself in the later part of the show for years thinking about all these problems, looking at the evolution of the technology that we had built as a team. We had grown considerably uh, as a program. And I just felt like that robo-taxi mission, the thing that Waymo has now been pursuing for almost 12 years, maybe more, it just wasn't within grasp. And so I started to look for more focused problems where there was a, a narrower operational domain and a very attractive and direct impact for, from a business model perspective. And that's when I, I felt like trucking, trucking was the answer to, to that question. And I still believe that today. So. You entered uh, trucking in February 2016 when you were the co-founder of Auto. Is that correct? 2016, okay. Okay, and which is right around the same time that you uh, bought a Tesla Model S, right? That's right, later that year, yes. And is also around the, around the same time that Tesla... Uh, claimed that all their vehicles had the hardware sufficient for full self-driving or level four at least. That's right. So uh, I know you still own that car because you told me that before we started recording. So we are now five years later. <laughs> so um, do you still feel that Robotaxi is further away in terms of commercial deployment than trucking, autonomous trucking? No question, 100%. I think that's that's borne out by... The evidence that it has taken so long, um, and there have been a lot of smart people that are really well financed, putting effort behind the the robo taxi dream, and that's not to say that I don't think it will eventually happen. I do think it will happen. I think that all vehicles will ultimately become autonomous. I think that's that's widely shared view. That's not controversial. But I don't think we are on the cusp of a revolution in the robo taxi era. I don't think that the technology has yet matured to a point where we're going to start to see it make a difference in people's lives, right? Waymo has announced their program in Arizona, and it's a great achievement, but that is not the holy grail that we're, we're all searching for. And I think we're still quite a leap away from, from reaching that holy grail. What is that holy grail in your view? And, and because from my end, it seems like what is defined as the holy grail keeps shifting to fit whatever is almost possible at any given moment. So, so as the, the CEO of Kodiak Robotics, what is, what is the Holy Grail today? It's, it, it's an interesting thought experiment. I mean, it depends on the timeline that you're, you're speaking about. I mean, the ultimate Holy Grail in my mind for any company working on this technology is to have a vehicle that can traverse any road environment that you could put a human on. At, at any time under any circumstances, right? If a human driver can drive the route and understand the context and understands the route, uh, the where they're going and they can get there, then an autonomous vehicle ought to be able to do that as well. I think we're a long way from that. And we need to find intermediate goals that actually serve a real purpose, solve a real pain point. And this is a very important aspect of it. We need to be solving a real pain point as opposed to developing cool tech. Self-driving is cool tech, 
But I think trucking and specifically highway focused trucking actually solves a real industry pain point. It can improve the safety of our roadways while also making the freight industry in this case much more efficient. And with the driver shortage that I know people have talked about for many years, this is a real pain point that the industry is facing. And I also think that it's an operational domain that the technology actually can solve and it can solve in a reasonable time frame. Alex, <laughs> I know you had a question in there. You asked the question. Um, <laughs> so tell us about Kodiak Robotics and what problem you solve within the autonomous trucking space. Kodiak Robotics is a company that's working to improve the safety of our roadways and to improve the efficiency of the freight industry. So with that goal in mind, we are working on autonomous trucks, specifically focused on the long haul highway routes. So not don't think intercity, not last mile delivery. Think I-10, you get on the on-ramp, you drive a thousand miles and you take the off-ramp at the other end. And we're focused specifically on that on-ramp highway off-ramp portion, because I believe that that is the first application that is impactful to the industry while also being achievable with the technology that we have available to us today. So who handles the first mile and last mile? What is, and are you running pilot programs now? That's right. We, we are running programs. So right now, we as Kodiak are handling the first and last mile. But more specifically, maybe to your question, we're going to have human drivers driving traditional manual tractors or trucks to handle the first and last mile. And as others have talked about, the plan is to have a transfer location where we actually swap the load, swap the trailer from our autonomous tractor to the manual driven tractor. And then the human drivers will shuttle freight on the first and last mile, excuse me. I'm curious about that that last piece, the the shuttling piece. Are you is does Kodiak working on a platform where it's going to be partnering with local drivers or um are you going to partner with existing operators to make that happen. I mean, there's the, there's the technical piece, of course, that is difficult, right? But then there's the operational and business model piece, which depending on how you approach it can mean the difference of making money or not. So walk me through that last mile piece, because that seems like you've got humans evolved. It gets more complicated. That's right. And it is complicated. Uh, the freight industry as a whole is complicated. And so anytime you add uh, a piece to the puzzle, uh, the complexity grows. Of course, the hope is that on a, on a net balance will we'll improve the efficiency of the overall system with our autonomous technology. But we're planning to do exactly as you said, all of the above, working with local drivers, uh, whether we employ those local drivers, whether we go to local carriers in the area to handle the last mile, or partner with some of the larger existing 3PLs and fleets who already handle all segments of the logistics supply chain, such as first and last mile, long haul, et cetera. You know, we have an interesting opportunity to partner with digital freight brokers to actually make the coordination problem easier because we need 
a human driver to be ready when an autonomous truck pulls in to make that swap. And by the way, that swap is a fully manual process. And I'll just get it out right now. Often people ask, like, what about fueling and things like that? That's all going to be done manually by a human who's stationed at the fueling station at the transfer location. And um, the coordination problem can be solved in a, in a handful of ways. One of the exciting ways that is, is by utilizing this new industry breed of brokers calling digital brokers, where you use intelligent algorithms to actually handle the coordination and timing. And we're building an infrastructure around our core technology being what we call the Kodiak driver. That's the autonomous technology. We also have products that we're developing that we call Kodiak on time, which is a fleet management system that will allow visibility into freight status, fleet status, et cetera, and help our partners coordinate with us in our loads in order to make that swap as timely and seamless as possible. So one quick follow-up, are you... You mentioned the digital platform and, and in terms of like the matching driver to freight, I'm, I'm think, I, I think that that's what you meant by that. So there's a ton of those um, out there. To be clear, is Kodiak developing that in-house or, or, or is Kodiak looking to partner with, you know, I, I don't know, maybe Uber Freight or one of the many other digital platforms sure. out there that do that? Yeah, we are not building that specific technology in-house. We are looking to partner with the players, uh, Uber Freight being one of them. There's Convoy, there's Transfix, there's there's others. And uh, we have some, some announcements coming soon on that front. But unfortunately, I can't talk about the specifics today. Sure you can. Of course you can. Where <laughs> else should you talk about it? This is an industry-focused <laughs> podcast full of breaking news. That's right. <laughs> um. You know, so so there have been a number, obviously, right? So like trucking has become um, a really important folk, you know, uh, application for uh, the AV space. A um, bunch of different companies taking a bunch of different approaches, some of whom have actually, you know, like you identified that middle mile as being um, a really big opportunity um, for some of the reasons that you've discussed. Um, and the challenge a lot of times does end up being sort of managing um, the transitions from, you know, that middle mile or, or the on freeway section, let's call it, where, you know, autonomous technology has so much opportunity and then and then getting, you know, into the, the freight yards or to the final delivery of first and last mile stuff. And um, one company, um, sort of notably uh, Starsky, um, had teleoperation. That was sort of their uh, solution was that rather than, than transferring uh, – either a driver into the truck, or in your case, it sounds like um, a, a completely different tractor with a human driver for that first and last mile, they would do teleoperation. Is there a reason, and, and of course, we should note, and um, we we did an episode with uh, with Starsky's founder, you can go back in the archives and, and check it out. I recommend it. It's really, it was a really interesting conversation. But um, was there a reason that you didn't go with with teleoperation um, for, that, for that first and last mile, that you decided to keep it with human drivers? Because as you say, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, the driver shortage is a big issue. Sometimes those, you know, the challenge of hiring drivers is that they don't, they want to be able to go home and sleep with their family. Starsky's pitch was a lot of it was that, um, that, that, that teleop would allow you to open the pool of, of drivers much more than you would be able to do otherwise. What's your thinking around, around that and why you decided to go with the, the approach that you did? It's, it's a great, it's a great analysis of, of the situation. And I think there have been multiple, multiple, approaches tried for us 
the fundamental challenge with making all of this work, and, and there are many challenges, but the fundamental challenge is the highway autonomy. Everything we're talking about is almost moot if you don't have a driverless L4 system that can actually move the goods for a thousand miles on the highway. And so for that reason, we at Kodiak have chosen to, to focus on that aspect of the problem first. And that's not to say that we haven't been working on these other aspects. We have. But really, the performance of the AV technology, in our case, the Kodiak driver, is what makes or breaks this entire conversation. And so we decided to work on that first. And I will say that as of today, all of the intelligence and decision-making processes in, in the Kodiak driver are fully self-contained within the truck. We don't use any remote assistance or remote operation or teleoperation. So everything that you see that we've posted, all those drives, that's done entirely based on what the truck sees with the information that it has live on its onboard computer. Now, for the first and last mile, I think there's a lot of different ways you could go. Teleop is an interesting one. I think the challenges there are, are several. You obviously have the latency, you have speed, you have to train the drivers, you have to have the infrastructure that doesn't fail. Uh, we are actively investigating remote assistance and teleoperation solutions for lower speed portions of the problem. Uh, we're, we have not deployed those today, but we're actively investigating it. I know a lot of other companies that have been around for a while have been more critical of teleoperations. And I think that's really born out of an era where teleoperation just wasn't feasible. To be fair, like the technology just didn't exist. The cellular reliability wasn't there. The technology on the infrastructure side wasn't there. The security wasn't there, et cetera. I think that's starting to change and we're starting to see technologies creep up. There are obviously many companies specifically working on this and we are looking to partner with some of those companies in order to bring remote operation to, to our trucks for specific operational domains. But we haven't yet we haven't yet actually rolled that out. You you kind of answered part of my follow-up question, which was, you know, getting a sense of if you plan on partnering or actually maybe doing an acquire or acquisition of Telops and really bringing it and integrating it within the operations. Um, so answer that, but also what is it that has happened in the last two years that has made teleops more technically feasible than it was before? Was there a particular breakthrough or something that was solved on the latency end that wasn't happening two or three years ago? So when I came here to this podcast, before I answer, my, my goal was to always anticipate your questions and preemptively answer them. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay on, on that front. So to answer your question more specifically, I, I, I don't know if there's a specific technology that has, that has dramatically changed. Obviously, everybody's hyping up 5G. Well, it remains to be seen in the, in the tests that we've seen and the tests that we've been a part of and that our partners have been a part of. It does look really promising. But I think it's more on the algorithmic front. So companies have now just focused on making it a priority. And you, when you need reliable communication, you need to start thinking about things like redundancy. You need to see it, send the information through redundant paths. And then you need to assemble that information in a cohesive way on the receiver end. And you need to do so at low latency. So it's a combination of the improvement of the LTE networks and the coverage that we've seen. I think prior to LTE, 
Uh, it just wasn't feasible. With LTE, it has become feasible in the last three or four years. You've seen that rollout happen, the coverage being one of the critical factors. And then as a result of that, there have been these companies that have really specialized in the communication protocols, in the redundancy protocols, in the low latency processing. Processors have dramatically improved over the last 10 years, especially at the low power end which is really what we're, we're, we're looking at here. I think it's a combination of all of these factors, in addition to the fact that the self-driving industry is maturing, first and last mile autonomy is, is starting to mature. There's really now a need for this type of technology, whereas, uh, say, eight years ago, 10 years ago, there wasn't as much of a need. I think that's, that's really where that's going. And then in terms of partnerships versus going it alone, one of the stories of Kodiak has always been from the beginning that we wanted to take advantage of this rich ecosystem of third-party providers that has cropped up around the self-driving industry. One of the reasons that I think Google built so much in-house is simply because they had to. There was no availability of third-party services, be it on the hardware side or the software side, when they were originally designing their system. And so they had no choice. When Kodiak started in 2018, we have a rich and mature ecosystem of specialists, people who are focused on one specific vertical, one specific area, um, and they become the experts and they do all the, the, the hard work and they do all the validation and then we just get to enjoy the fruits of, of, fruits of their labor. That, that's true of sensors, that's true of compute, uh, that's true of simulation providers, machine learning training and labeling providers, et cetera. We've been able to really partner with third parties in all of these areas and I think specifically with remote operations and teleoperations, that's also going to be true. We're going to partner with existing um, companies that are focusing specifically on that technology. Uh, so, you know, last year, you know, I say the same thing every six months. Um, the pace of M&A in the sector is going to accelerate, and it has. Uh, several companies have come on the show, and it seems specifically to um, talk about what they're doing, and then they get acquired. So how much money have you raised? What's your runway? And what's your one to three year plan? I mean, do you foresee remaining an independent company or um, being acquired by someone? And and who would that be? Very loaded questions, of course. Fully so loaded. we officially we raised... <laughs> We we've officially raised forty million dollars in our series E uh, series A, excuse me, back in twenty eighteen, August of twenty eighteen, and uh, we've we've built up a really highly experienced, focused team, um, and have been going strong on that funding. I would say that we haven't made any other funding announcements, and, and I can't talk about them them publicly. Uh, I certainly can't talk about our, our runway situation publicly. But what I will say is that. We are in the strongest position that we have been since the founding of the company. Um, I think the technology that we've built really speaks for itself. And I'm hoping that going forward, we can really start framing the conversation around actual performance of these AV systems, as opposed to maybe uh, secondary factors such as size of the team or money raised or partnerships established, right? What does the technology say? And in that case, at least in the trucking in the trucking arena, I think Kodiak is is absolutely at the top, and we've done so, as you point out, on on very limited resources with a very um, small team that's highly focused and highly efficient. And I've been a part of many larger teams working on AV in the past, and I can tell you for sure firsthand that larger team doesn't always mean 
more productivity or better results or higher performance. And so uh, we're, we're in a very strong position. I think we have some of the best tech in the space. We've done it in less time and on less funding than most, if not all of our competitors. And I, I envision us uh, remaining independent for the foreseeable future. We're making a push to get to level four driverless. I think we can do that in the next several years. And I'm really excited about the journey. And so is the team. I know Alex and Ed have follow-ups. <laughs> yeah, no, I wanted to to ask about sort of that what you were talking about with the, the performance of the AB systems. Um, Kodiak recently published a blog post talking about uh, your first uh, intervention-free delivery. Um, this also taps into a topic that I think has been discussed a lot in, um, if not inside the AV world itself, and certainly among observers of the AV world. And I think like Tesla's full self-driving beta and all the videos that are coming out of that. And sort of what does it mean when you can do a trip with no interventions? And, and you know, obviously it's going to depend on the trip and, and a whole bunch of other things. It's, it's a much more complicated topic than like, like everything AV related than it might appear at first, at first blush. So I'm curious, like what, what does it mean that Kodiak has done um, an intervention-free delivery? Um, does that mean you, you guys are, are, are basically there? Does it mean there's still a long ways to go? Um, if you could just talk through some of the, the nuance in that, um, I think that's one of the reasons people come to this show is, is for some of that nuance. So um, love to just get your perspective on that. Absolutely. So we think that the announcement of our disengage-free deliveries is significant for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, almost any time you see these type of announcements or videos, more importantly, they're, they're demo videos. They're highly curated, they're highly crafted, they're highly selected. And we, we wanted to do something different. I think if you remember back to the, the auto, uh, auto demonstration with Budweiser, it was quite an achievement. We truly drove the 120 miles with no driver in the driver's seat. But what you didn't see behind the scenes was that it was a heavily crafted and heavily coordinated demo uh, that was basically non-repeatable and it was cherry-picked under the most ideal circumstances we could possibly find. Not to take anything away from the team, I think we did an amazing job given the, the timeline and, and what we were working on. But what Kodiak achieve, has achieved is different. We, we've announced way back in, in the summer of 2019 that we started working with shipping partners to carry freight. And our corridor is Dallas to Houston. And we're moving freight every day for our shipping partners from Dallas to Houston and back. And the thing about moving freight is that it's on a highly coordinated schedule. You're given a pickup window. You have to pick up the freight within that window. And you're given a drop-off window. And you have to drop off the freight within that window. You don't get to select time of day. You don't get to avoid rush hour. You don't get to avo avoid uh, the sun setting or things like that. It's just whatever your schedule is. And when we started to achieve the level of performance where our system, the Kodiak driver, could drive the entire, entire highway portion of these routes for our shipping partners under real world conditions in a non-cherry-picked, non-demo way, we felt that it was a really significant moment, both for Kodiak and for the industry. And so we wanted to publish, one, the achievement, because we're really proud of it, especially given that we are such a small team and we have raised so such little funding relative to our competitors, but also so that the public could see what it's like to be alongside a self-driving truck. And spoiler alert, I know this is a podcast, so you can't see the video. We can't show a video. But if you go to our blog post and you watch those videos, the first thing you'll notice is that it's incredibly boring. 
And that's exactly the way it should be. But um, going back to, to the, main, the main point, we don't get to cherry pick anything. We have to handle rush hour traffic on both ends. We have to handle complicated merges and exit scenarios. We have to handle construction and a changing road environment. The, the route from Dallas to Houston changes every single day. There's not a single day, well, aside from holidays and special days, but most days, the route that we see is different from the route we saw previously. And this is, a, this is one of the most challenging problems facing the industry. And so, again, we think we've gotten to the level of performance where our system can handle all of the complicated aspects that a true highway environment throws at you. And we've now done it repeatedly. It wasn't a one-off thing. In fact, we posted one of our videos where we did the route four times on the same day with no interventions from the driver whatsoever. whatsoever. So that's something that we're really proud of. And I think it hopefully is a milestone not only for Kodiak, but also for the industry. And I really want to see us going forward as an industry talking about the actual performance as opposed to things like, we made this acquisition, we got this money, we signed this partnership. Those are all great things for the long term, but where does the technology stand? And we think that Kodiak's technology stands stands uh, at the forefront. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I agree. I think, you know, for, uh, again, observers of this space, it's really hard to tell sometimes what matters and what doesn't. And there'll be sort of a phase where everyone thinks like, oh, you know, partnerships are everything right now. And and, you know, it, we kind of go between different, you know, different things. Um, so I definitely, definitely applaud, um, certainly in terms of trying to get people to understand this, this whole, you know, combination of technology and business together that, that kind of creating some of those um, meaningful things are, are, are really going to be helpful. Um, but I, I just wanted to um, also get a, a better sense of um, uh, sort of from the hardware side uh, and specifically your, your sensor suite, sort of what you're using to achieve this. Um, I think. Obviously, it's one of the things that people look at um, and, and can start to understand a little bit. Um, uh, you, you have a really interesting blog post. By the way, I recommend uh, Kodiak's uh, blog in general, like to see the videos you were talking about. But also, you have a, a really great blog post about um, your vision system and sort of how mm -hmm. that's rolling. And the one other, I know I've asked like five questions combined here, but but the one other piece of this that I wanted to tack on is um, we hear a lot from, from trucking companies about FMC, sorry. FMCW LIDAR specifically, and that mm -hmm. like in the trucking application, it's a particularly important for that. Um, it's something we hear from some folks. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that's part of the mix as well. So there you go. Seven questions. <laughs> have at it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'll be able to keep all of those questions straight. I think on the FMCW, obviously, it's a very promising technology. And there's certainly at least one, one player out there that is, is touting it as the holy grail that really unlocks the capability of the space. I think that the problem with that statement is that it's never really been substantiated. There's not really been any evidence provided other than uh, some some company's opinion that that's the case. And I think the actual facts and data actually quite refute that. Um, yes, on, on highways, you need to have long-range sensing, but there's multiple modalities to get long-range sensing. There are other LIDAR providers that, that offer high-quality, reliable, long-range LIDAR. There's obviously uh, narrow, narrow lens, long-range camera technology. There's uh, long-range radar. We're starting to see 40 radars crop up. Everybody's talking about them. We're using them as well. Um, when, you, when you combine all of these sensing modalities in a very uh, principled way, as, as we have, and we, like we said, we, talk, we have an entire blog post dedicated to that, that philosophy 
um, you you can achieve extremely high level performance. It's let me let me just say this: it's a lot less about having one great sensor and a lot more about having a suite of sensors with the proper redundancy and the proper algorithmic um, power behind it. I will also say that in in the situations that we still have to deal with uh, at Kodiak that we haven't yet solved, almost never, in fact, maybe even never, do our perception engineers come to us and say, we need a longer range LiDAR to solve this problem. It's just not the problem facing the industry. And if if Kodiak had acquired a LiDAR company specifically for that purpose, I would be here touting that it was the greatest thing since sliced bread and there was absolutely mandatory in order to solve the problem. But I think the facts actually speak for themselves. The performance of our system refutes that it's a necessary sensor. Um, and But you know, sensors are improving all the time and the sensor suite that we use today on our truck will not be the ultimate sensor suite that we use in three, four years. And so uh, I think that the sensor ecosystem is uh, rich and strong. There's a lot of competitors. There's a lot of people vying for reliability at, at a cost point that makes sense uh, with performance that's state of the art. And that's a great thing for everyone. That's a great thing for Kodiak. But I don't think you need one killer sensor or one uh, one perfect sensor in order to unlock uh, long haul trucking. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten the other five questions that you asked before this. <laughs> it's okay. Ed is known for asking like a five minute question. So yeah, okay. the, the only other one that I, I would like to, it's just sort of, I mean, I, I assume based on what you've said um, that, you know, you're using at least three sensor modalities. If you just give us a sense of sort of, you know, and, and you, you've made a very persuasive case that it's about that, that suite, right? The systems level capabilities of, of that suite of sensors rather than one holy grail. But if you could just give us some sense of, of um, what what that suite looks like from from your perspective. Um. Mm -hmm. Sure, I, we have we, so we we use lidars, we use cameras, and we use radar uh, as our primary sensing modality. We can see 360 degrees around the truck, with the exception of like directly behind the trailer, just like a, a human driver would not be able to. But we have forward facing lidars, we have side and rear facing lidar camera that covers the entire range around the truck along with forward and rear facing radar. So we have lots of redundancy built into the system. And unlike some other uh, perception stacks, we don't have any one primary sensor. There's no sensor that's the primary sensor. And, and as we explained in our blog post, every sensor has its strengths and its weaknesses. Every sensor has its uncertainty profile. And every measurement that we get, we we account for with that uncertainty profile um, uh, integrated into the ultimate fusion algorithm, right? And so we can deal with degradation of a sensor. There's overlap across all of the different sensor modalities, et cetera. And it's really this redu redundancy and understanding of uncertainty that allows us to reach state-of-the-art performance as opposed to having one great sensor. Well, Don, um, this has flown by. We're at about 45 minutes, which is our typical quitting time. But I did want to just ask one last question before we wrap, which is, you know, put on your forecaster hat for a moment. And do you think, what do you think is going to happen this year, specifically in the realm of self-driving uh, trucking? And do you think that the approach that Kodiak is using, which is when you talked about the sensors, not just being one killer sensor, is that the wave of the future? Or do you think that you will continue to be an outlier in that regard? 
I think outside of Tesla, this is the approach that that most of the AV companies are are taking. And I think that that will continue to be the case. And uh, I don't necessarily disagree with Elon when he says that cameras ought to be the only thing you need. I, I agree with that in principle, in theory. But I think from a practical standpoint, if we want to get to a solution as fast as possible and as safe as possible, having more data, using more sensors, having redundancy throughout your system from your sensors to your compute to your, to your actuation, these are the things that actually make self-driving level four possible. And, and these are the things that now Kodiak are going to be focusing on over the next couple of years. We've reached a level of performance on, on the algorithmic side where we can handle everything we need to handle. Now it's about doing the safety validation, uh, doing all the, the, fish, the, the, the testing to really get it to an automotive grade system, adding the redundancy on the actuation side, having redundant braking, having, re having redundant steering. These are the things that we need to add over the next couple of years in order to really launch this system. But yes, I think we will continue to see trucks like the Kodiak driver and others utilizing a wide range of sensors until this problem is solved, this technology is rolled out at scale, and then we can start talking about how do we scale back the sensing suite? How do we reduce the compute load? It will happen, but that's not the way to get there the fastest. That's not the way I think that you should approach the problem from the beginning. Great. Well, thanks so much for for coming in on the show and um, dealing with Ed's very long questions, my smart and uh, short and concise questions, and and Alex medium mediocre questions. <laughs> so uh, again, uh, thanks again to our audience for listening to another episode of the Autonogast. Thank you guys so much. Actually, it's hold been on great a to second. be here. I want to add one more <laughs> remark. <laughs> Since you care about safety so much, and I, I do too, I just want to let you know that if you are acquired within six months of the airing of this episode, we will never have another autonomous trucking company on again. Good luck. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. All right. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been, it's been a great conversation.